Okay, good morning. Um, most of you probably know, maybe some of the younger kids don't, but I teach the juniors. Um, and so every morning when we have Bible, um, this is what they have to endure. So you guys have to share some of that burden. Um, just to be uh, real honest with you, um, I like it better when other people do chapel than myself. And uh, I'm not saying that it's not a privilege, because it is. It's a great privilege, and it's great to study. Um, I just wouldn't probably consider myself real gifted in the area of maybe preaching to a large group. Um, so hopefully the Lord will use it for his purposes, um, because I think we have a great amount of uh, content to look at today that can hopefully change how we view um, how we view God and how we view ourselves. Um, the psalm that was just read, Psalm 19, is a, is a fascinating psalm, and it's a very important psalm. And I'm just curious, if I were to uh, give the offer that whoever can run over, grab a basketball, and make a free throw, and the first person to make it gets a million dollars, one million dollars, first person to get over there. I mean, you don't have to wait in line, push, shove, get that ball, put it in the hoop. You get a million dollars. I'm guessing I would have your attention. And yet Mr. Thiessen was just reading from God's holy scripture that God's word is greater than gold, much fine gold. And I, I don't have eyes everywhere, but as he was reading, I, I glanced up, and there were a number of people, as he's reading that scripture, who seem very disinterested. They apparently have conversations that are way more important than God's word. And the admonition to bring your Bible, it's a great admonition, but sometimes we hold up our English book, sometimes we, we really don't take it very seriously. Um, and I'm not here to complain. I'm here to urge you that what we're going to be looking at and what Mr. Thiessen read, um, these are the words of life. And we're going to see a man who uh, is pretty sure his life is over because he's going to go through a very, very difficult experience. Probably to the point that most people, if they would read this, they would say, this can't be true. It must be, uh, you know, allegory. It must be some sort of a story. Was it really a man named Jonah? And I submit to you, no, this, this is a real man who went through this real um, event. And uh, the interesting part of this is most of you are not waiting on bated breath like, really, what happened? <laughs> because if you've had any training whatsoever as a small child, this story gets told all the time. I'm not exactly sure what is learned from it by most children. <laughs> um, I remember hearing the story of Jonah and the whale, and uh, it was kind of a happy story, at least as I perceived it. But I didn't really understand what was being being taught. So I'm very thankful for those who have uh, taught before uh, because they've given you a great overview. And 
with only being four chapters, it doesn't take you long if you want to kind of read ahead and look at some of the details that await us. Uh, my goal is to not infringe upon where we're heading in chapters three and four, but again, we, we kind of know the big picture, the big story. So if you would, um, open your Bibles to Jonah 2. We actually are going to deal with Jonah 2, 1 through 10. It's the whole chapter, but it's only 10 verses. Actually, without taking a long time to recount, because it always is kind of good to refresh where we've been, I'm going to read the last verse in chapter 1. In 117, it says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. How did he get here? What has Jonah been up to? Well, we don't have to look far back into chapter 1, but the book of Jonah is an odd account. Because pretty much what you would stereotypically or typically think would happen doesn't. What would you expect a prophet of God from the northern kingdom of Israel? He receives a word from the Lord, and he says, go and preach against the evil, preach repentance to Nineveh. Well, you'd expect a man of God, a pastor, if you will, or a, a prophet, that he would go and he would preach, and he doesn't. We know that. He books his ticket, he pays, and instead of heading to Nineveh, he heads to what we think probably is southern Spain. I'm out of here. 
you would think that the boat he's on with uh, a group of sailors. Uh, my daughter Cassidy took a class her senior year at Hastings College, and it was about piracy. Hooray, liberal arts education. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what piracy does for a four-year degree, but anyway, she had to take a course, and it was in piracy. And uh, I didn't read her materials, but she said, Dad, this is gross. These guys, these seafaring men, typical, were very immoral, very superstitious, and we know from here they were idolatrous. They, they worshiped false gods. So what would you expect a bunch of sailors who are idolaters to do? Curse God, right? They don't. <laughs> the prophet runs from his responsibility. And we see in chapter 1 that ultimately these hardcore sailors who are pagans make vows to God. They fear the Lord. You wouldn't expect that. And so it's a strange thing. If you jump ahead into chapter 3 when Jonah finally does go to Nineveh, I mean, we're talking a kingdom, the most feared people in the world at that time. And you would think the king who hears this prophecy from some guy in Israel would say, uh, forget it, buddy. You don't know how powerful our army is. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He says, tell everybody, repent, turn from evil. Put on sackcloth. We're, we're guilty. He responds with humility. So this whole account is about as different as you would ever expect. And so that gives us a little sense of what's going on here with Jonah. Um, I've tried to gain as much assistance for chapter 2 from various commentaries and pastors, and I've listened to people teach, and Jesse Johnson um, has preached through this. He's a pastor that our seniors got to see some years ago in D.C. area, and so Gordon had sent those, and they've been very helpful, very helpful. And so um, as I've listened to other people comment, and as I've read the passage multiple times, one commentator says, if you want to look at the theme of Jonah, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is very plainly stated, a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. When I first read that, I thought, wow, that's, that's harsh. A rebellious prophet who hates God because God loves those who are opposed to him. But then I thought, well, man, Jesus in the New Testament, he, he echoes that same sentiment as God the Son. In Matthew 5, he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. 
But Jonah will have none of it. He's like, I hate those people. I hate them so much that we'll find out eventually, Jonah says, you know what? I would rather die than go preach to those people because what I'm afraid of, God, you might actually forgive them. And he says, they don't deserve forgiveness. These people are horrible. And so we've got a really torn up prophet here. One other commentator rephrased the theme. He says, is it okay for God to show grace and mercy to wicked people? And Jonah's answer is, no. God, you should not show grace. You should not show mercy. If Jonah's answer is right, I'm in trouble. You're in trouble. Because... The teaching of Paul in Romans 3 says there's no one righteous. All of us have turned away. The prophet Isaiah says the same thing. And so we've got a problem. If God doesn't have mercy and grace, if he doesn't send his spirit to awaken us to our sin, we're doomed. And yet Jonah's like, no. You should not have mercy upon these people. So that gets us to where we're at right now. Jonah, at the end of chapter 1, the the sailors, they're trying to get the storm to stop. It's a horrible storm. The ship probably is going to break apart. And these sailors, they, they go down as he's sleeping, and they ask the question, who are you? He says, this is a strange answer. More paradox here. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear God that created the sea and the land. Now, we'll just see if anybody is really thinking right now. That's one of the dumbest things that anybody could ever think to say right now. I fear the God who made the sea and the land, and he tries to run from God on a boat. A few of you have that kind of grin in your eye, like, oh, that is kind of stupid. You are at the mercy of the creator of the ocean, and you're on a boat, and now these sailors are like, we've got to do something. What should we do? And uh, most of you know Jonah's response throw me overboard when you throw me into the water the sea will calm down and when i first read that and multiple readings of it i always thought well that's kind of a noble that's kind of a noble thing sacrifice me and uh i will calm the the raging sea some have said that it's even a foreshadowing i don't know if this is true or not you'd have to talk to someone who studied this more But even the idea of propitiation, the heralding of ultimately Christ's incarnation. It's an interesting idea. But the one thing I do, I think, know is that I don't think this was a noble thing for Jonah. Remember his goal? I will not go to Nineveh. I will not preach to these horrible, wicked people. And if I'm dead at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea... I don't have to do it. 
his hatred is intense. Here's, here's my question. Why does he hate them so much? I don't remember exactly what the other guys that have taught through the first part. I know Mr. Zanger talked about the overview. Uh, Mr. Mankin and I, we get to teach world history, and um, we, we teach about the Assyrian people. Um, if you know anything about this, this group of people, um, many people would say that this would be offspring of Nimrod, whose goal was to build the Tower of Babel, where the languages were confused. But they're uh, known to be <coughs> worshipers of false gods. Um, they're really preoccupied with water on the Tigris River and fish. So some people wonder, were they Phoenicians who ultimately relocated because they worshiped Dagon, half fish, half man, so false god. And there's a whole other pantheon of false gods, Nunu and Nanshi and all these different gods. And I, that's not really my concern right now, but this was a pagan place. The thing that we teach when we talk about the Assyrian people is they were brutal. And Israel has already had a run-in with the Assyrians, and some of the tribes have been taken away. They had an interesting way of conquering people. They knew that if you would go into a territory and conquer it, and all the hometown people stayed there, there was a good chance they might revolt, start talking amongst themselves, you know, how can we overthrow these people? So they divided them up. It's not all that much different than if you have a teacher and you're constantly getting trouble in class, what do they do? They move you, right? So maybe you're sitting over in this corner and your best friend's in that corner and man, it's hard to, hard to interact. Well, they would do that to societies. So basically their culture, their language, their custom, their heritage, their religion would be destroyed because there'd be no way to continue it. But then they were even more graphic when they would conquer people because they wanted people to fear them. They would rather have people say, the Assyrians are coming, we give up. Here, lock me up because I don't want to fight you guys. Not to focus on the brutality too much, but they were known to burn people alive, to flay them, which means to cut the skin, skin the person. And obviously, it would be a horribly painful experience. Impale people, take a wooden stake and shove it through people's body and then have them on those skewers and light them on fire as they would walk into their city. Uh, in other words, you don't mess with these people. And Jonah, his distaste is, is very evident. So that gets us to chapter 2. He's thrown into the sea. And the strangest thing is God, in the midst of a rebellious prophet, shows his grace. There is a danger, I think, in a uh, setting such as ours in a Christian school that we will say words over and over and over to the point where they lose their meaning. I had a student some years ago write 
a chapel reflection. And they were very honest. But they said, I am so tired of hearing the word gospel. Gospel, 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 gospel. And at the end of their reflections, like, I don't think anybody even knows what this means. Very passionate, angry reflection. And so not to try to sort out what that student was dealing with, but I think sometimes the word grace gets used an awful lot. And I'm not sure we even know what it means. I tried to find some really, really great definitions, and actually one of the simplest ones seemed to come up over and over. But the idea of unmerited favor. If you've experienced, and all of us have, because we woke up this morning, we've experienced common grace. It's the grace that everyone has, that the sun rises for everyone and it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. But this is a little bit different. This would be a favor that is being bestowed upon Jonah. And he definitely does not deserve favor. He's a rebel. He says, I will not do what you want me to do. I'm going to do what I think is best, and I will not go preach to these people. So, Jonah, chapter 2, here we go. We're going to look at three things. I don't know if it's helpful or not. The three things we're going to look at regarding God's gracious interaction with Jonah in the sea. The first one is God's grace sometimes brings affliction or suffering. And even as you write that, that you would probably think in your mind, well, that doesn't make any sense. Grace does not mean that we should suffer. Man, that's, we should be prosperous. We should have good things happen. Wouldn't that be the gracious thing to do? But we're going to see that sometimes God's grace brings affliction. The second thing we see is God's grace brings deliverance. And lastly, God's grace brings restoration. So here we go. God's grace brings affliction. If you can recount what's gone on thus far in this minor prophet's experience, we know there's a boat, we know there's a storm, and we know there's a fish. And I would submit to you that Jonah doesn't see any of those things as a means of grace at first. I mean, who would? Who would want to have a raging storm in the middle of the Atlantic? I believe it was a supernatural storm, but what I'm told meteorologically that on that body of water, you can have over 90 mile an hour winds today. And sailors can be uh, pretty scared uh, to sail in parts of the Mediterranean when those storms come up. So anyway, we know it's a bad storm. And it's interesting because as you look at what Jonah starts to pray, verse 1, it says, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. 
and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Um, is there anyone in here who's an accomplished swimmer? Spent time swimming? Okay, good. I'm glad. Hopefully someday you're hanging around me when I'm in water. I'm a horrible swimmer. I don't like water. Water, uh, it has power over me because I can't swim. And um, one time we were with our family uh, in the ocean, and uh, the waves have always intrigued me. And so we were doing something called body surfing, where you would take this little piece of styrofoam, try to catch a wave, and if you catch it right, it just zings you into the shore. It's fun. So that part was fun. I just want to make sure I can touch the ground with my feet because I'm a bad swimmer. And uh, in the process of doing that, I thought, well, if I go out a little further, maybe the waves will be a little bigger and they will give me more speed. And uh, if you've ever been in the ocean, you probably know what's going to happen here. I caught the wave wrong and it flipped me and it spun me to the point where I didn't know up, down, right. I didn't know where I was at. And so I was trying to reach to find something to give me a sense of where I am hopefully some sand under my feet or or something. I couldn't find it. And so I come up trying to get some air, and guess what's coming? Next wave. And then it just spins me. I That's, that's pretty low-key, guys, because obviously I made it. But even talking about that makes me just get anxious. Because I have no control over getting out of that water. I am at the mercy of those waves. And if I would have gotten caught in an undertow, I think that might be a little bit what Jonah's dealing with here. He cries out to God. And as he is giving this prayer, obviously he's doing it from the belly of the fish, so he's been rescued, but he's recounting what it was like to be thrown into the water. He says, out of the belly of Sheol, we don't use that word a lot, but it'd be like the realm of the dead. In other words, I'm as good as dead. I'm heading to my grave. This is it. There is no recovering from being tossed into this raging sea. It's interesting because if you look probably in the middle column of your scripture, depending on what your Bible translation is, there's all kinds of little bitty print. And if you guys look, <laughs> he starts quoting Psalms. And he starts quoting Psalms that deal with suffering and death. He says, <clears throat> this is Psalm 18, 4 and 5, the cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. This is not an optimistic psalm. It's like I'm going down and there is no, no hope. As he continues on, he recognizes, how did he get in the water? It's the sailors, right? It's like, no. <laughs> He says, I know that I've been disobedient, and I know that the Lord has brought this storm. Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. 
all your waves and your billows passed over me. At the first part of verse 4 says, And I am driven away from your sight. That's horrible. Now, it's interesting. I think it was maybe Alistair Begg that, that made a really fascinating point when he was preaching through this. And so I'm just going to echo what he said. It's not my original thought. But he said, for someone who knows nothing of who God is, they know nothing of Yahweh and his forgiveness. They know nothing of God's grace. They know nothing of communing with God. To be away from God, no big deal. But we see here, I think, I think Jonah knew what it was like <laughs> as a prophet to have that communion, to have trust, to have faith in a God who is the creator of everything. And so that first part of four, it's, it's pretty, pretty sad. In Luke 11, it says, do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can cast your soul into hell. I think that's a similar feeling that we're getting here with Jonah. The next part of four, there in 4B, if you will, there's, there's hope. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. I don't know what he means by that. Some people think that maybe he's like, you know what? I'm dead. I'm going down. I've got seaweed around my neck. I can't breathe. Salt water's in my lungs. And he's like, you know what? My only hope is to see your holy temple in heaven because I'm not going to make it. Verses 5 and 6 further describes the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now before he finishes that <clears throat> statement, I think we're starting to get a picture of what Jonah's experiencing. I'm not going to return. I will not live. Um, the other night, my wife, she said, let's, let's watch something. And so she randomly picked a movie. I'd never heard of it before, nor had she, and I think we know why. But not to tell you all the parts to it, but there was a scene where uh, it's a ship that is sinking. Big, huge ship. Not, not the Titanic, but it's big, big ship. And uh, these people are trying to get off the boat because it's going down. They're going to, you know, face sure death. So what they're doing is they're they're crawling through um, heating vents, you know, like uh, heating ducts like this, except it was the metal rectangular kind, to try to get out of this very very dangerous place. And one of the guys, as he's crawling through trying to get out of it, um, he gets stuck, and he can't raise his arm. He can't move, and the water is coming up. And it's getting higher and higher, and so he can't move, and he is going to be drowned in a grave where he is stuck. And I, I thought of that 
And even my wife, as she's watching it, she's pretty claustrophobic. She does not like tight places. <laughs> she reaches over and she grabs me and she just starts squeezing my hand. I'm like, what is going on? She's like, this is making me anxious. I, I get the same feeling right here. This, this, is, this is over with. And yet, at a point of hopelessness and despair, the second part of verse 6 says, yet <laughs> you brought my life from the pit or the grave, O Lord my God. What brought him up? A fish. He was resigned. I'm, I'm not going to live. And a fish, the grace of God, sends a fish. And there's all kinds of people who try to sort this out. I don't want to spend a lot of time. Was it a whale? Was it a shark? Was it a, I don't know. But we do know this, that this fish swallows Jonah. And he is lifted from his watery grave. So we see that the affliction of the storm, the affliction of sinking to the depths of the sea, ultimately are all working in accordance with God's providential plan. And the next component, he's delivered. God uses the fish to lift Jonah from the pit. And as you look then from verse 6 and 7, what you really see here is never a time when Jonah is recounting this experience. You don't hear him say, Lord, save me from the water. Lord, rescue me. What you do hear, though, is a an acknowledgement of submission. God is in charge. And ultimately, at the end of the prayer, we see thanksgiving. Verse 7, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. There's a little aside here in verse 8. It says, <laughs> Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Essentially, what he's saying is trusting in yourself, trusting in some other entity besides God is a fool's errand. Those idols that the sailors tossed overboard, that they inevitably had with them, what are they going to do? I think it was Mr. Teeson some years ago. It's funny the things you remember, but I believe he had a chapel where he was talking about idolatry, and there was a statement that says, idols never deliver. And so we can kind of take a second to jump out of Jonah's predicament, and we can start learning a lot of things, I think, even for us today. What are you trusting in? What is your hope in? Um, I would argue that uh, I've trusted in a lot of things other than God over the years, and I will echo the sentiment, idols never deliver. And if you think it's because of, uh, you know, I, I'm trusting in my intellect, my success in school, my athletic achievement, my, you know, as we get older, the money we have, the retirement account we have, they never deliver. But Yahweh does. He lifts, out of his grace, he lifts him from the watery grave. 
Verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What a great statement. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So, as we get near the end of this chapter, we see in verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Again, you're going to have to ask Mrs. Flynn or somebody. I don't know how that works. I don't know how he survived three days in the belly. It's interesting because we know Mr. Mankin mentioned it last week. Jesus talks about by name Jonah in Matthew 12 that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth, talking about his death, ultimate resurrection, victory over sin and death. It's fascinating parallel there. As Jonah is nearing at least our text here in chapter 2 of this deliverance, we have a number of things to, to think through. God's grace brought affliction. He brought a storm. God's grace brought deliverance in the form of a fish. And now we see really a recommissioning because in the very first part of chapter 3, as Jonah, in whatever condition he's in, he's now on dry land, and he's like, my vow, I will go. I don't want to, but I will go, and I will preach to those people. So he's recommissioned to do what God had him assigned to do in the first place. What can we learn? Well, I think there are some applications. And one big one, is that sometimes to get our attention, sometimes when we're being disobedient, God makes things very uncomfortable. Sometimes it's suffering, sometimes it's affliction. And yet even in that, it's a gracious thing. It's a gracious thing because we come to the end of ourselves and we recognize there is only one true God. And he is worthy of obedience. Now, some of you might be holding out and say, well, does God ever use prosperity? Yeah. Uh, Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon says, I have everything. I've tried everything. But you know what? In the end, it just didn't work. Normally, that's not the case. And so my offer here for the million-dollar shot it's not real. But if it were and you swished that shot in the first one, you know, would that be what would really make you have a thankful heart and recognize that you can do nothing apart from God? I doubt it. I've often pondered, I don't know if it's accurate, but it oftentimes seems that people who have some really high-level talent Maybe you're really good at school stuff. You just always have been good. It comes easy for you. Maybe you're just good at sports. Or I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're the life of the party and people like being around you. I've often wondered, do they have a harder time 
recognizing their need for a Savior. I don't know. Uh, I would entreat you today to recognize that you can trust in all kinds of things, but they will not deliver. And so just as Jonah was provided a fish, God has provided us a Savior, which Christ the Lord, defeating sin and death. And we're called to repent, just like the Ninevites. Turn from sin. It's interesting because sometimes we'll talk about repentance and conversion. And I think probably the, the best way to look at it is if we're turning from sin and turning to Christ, that is the idea of converting. Turning from a path of idolatry and selfishness and saying, this is going to lead me to a watery grave, and saying, no, I will obey. I will trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's, that's really what we're talking about. Another thing to remember, I can't tell you that every time something difficult happens to you, I, I don't know, I don't have the mind of God. But one thing that was mentioned, when you're going through difficulty, when you're going through trial, sickness, loss, death, all the things that come your way, remember <laughs> that the fish that Jonah received, the deliverance he received, is under the authority of God. So, I just think back to little snippets in time in my own life where it felt like figuratively, not literally, that the waves were crashing and everything was falling apart. And there was very little hope to be reminded that God is sovereign. And he's using all things in his providential plan to orchestrate all things for his purposes. And so I think it was mentioned maybe even last week, we oftentimes quote Romans 8.28, but it's, it's an amazing promise to those who love the Lord, who are called by Him, that He is working all things together for good. If you think about how is this for good, well, I know there would be a generation of people in a pagan culture who come to a point of humility and repentance because you eventually will go to Nineveh and they miraculously with a very short sermon they respond and they worship the one true God for a time and the generation that follows is going to be destroyed in Nineveh and so that takes us kind of to the end of this, this passage. I want to uh, just share one. <clears throat> one thing. It's from Isaiah 46. And um, I'm just going to turn there really quickly. It, it's something that as I read it, just fortifies our faith. 
could read the, the whole chapter. It's dealing with the idea of the foolishness of worshiping idols. But Isaiah 46, 8 says this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do it. Jonah resisted. No doubt about it. He did not resist successfully. Because God, his purposes will stand. And so the sooner that we can learn that, um, there is great safety in obedience to God. There is great safety in being obedient. And there's great danger and great loss in disobedience. So that simple lesson probably could have been taught to the second graders, but I'm not sure they would have the ability to understand some of the depth that we see in Jonah chapter 2. But the truth stands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophet Jonah and how we can learn from it. Father, help us to be obedient. Help us to trust in you alone. Your word tells us that those who chase after other gods, their sorrows are multiplied. Father, help us to see that your grace is working in ways that we cannot perceive, and yet in many ways we exult and we're so thankful that you, out of your loving kindness, have called a people to yourself. Help us to live in light of that fact with joyful hearts and obedient spirits. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. E-group wise, I think this